KBLA Talk 1580, Dominique DePrima in for Ariva Martin. And yes, I am still in real time uh, talking with Miriam Browning Nance and uh, Karina DeBarro of Horizon uh, and Horizon Media. And they have done this uh, report, Path to Help Black and African American Insights. And we're ta- you were talking about how. Um, you know, African-American black folks have a mistrust of the uh, health care system. And um, the brief, your study in brief found that this is persistent. And it's um, a result of, you acknowledge it's a result of being misdiagnosed, being exploited by the government. Um, and so one of the things you're doing, you're saying, is helping medical brands understand how to serve this community. So obviously it has to be more than branding, right? It has to be because it's just not an unfound, it's not a mistrust coming out of, you know, thin air. It's a mistrust coming out of our experiences in the system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not only a mistrust coming out of history. It's a mis- It's coming out of right now, you know, every day, yes. people's experiences right now, every yeah. day for sure. So, one of the things that we did was we tried to take a look at things from an intersectional angle of how people's identities, their resources, their responsibilities all kind of work together for, to, to craft their experience or to shape their experiences. And then we looked at, we, we could call it the path to health because we really did look at each step of the path from, you know, making an appointment, getting to that appointment, interacting with the provider so we could see where the biggest gaps were, where the biggest challenges were for different people and different groups of people. And then healthcare organizations can find where people are falling down on that path, what can be done there, what really can be done there. And you do have to then communicate that to the right people, but you're right, it's not obviously not just about communication. So, for instance, we saw with this group that um, provider interactions were the, the area that most disproportionately affects African-American patients. Um, the actual being in the room with people, not with the, with the doctor, not being heard, not being understood – but that also sets up some, some opportunities there, right? So it, it means that if organizations invest in things like anti-bias training, cultural competency, and, and get their providers, not just providers, people from, from the first person that you talk to when you, you call in to make an appointment, more aware of this, and then also communicate that to patients so they know who to trust, uh, that could make a really big difference down the road. Yeah, I, I see that you. Um, one of the things you recommend is representation. That's kind of a tall order when there's very few black doctors in the system. Um, how, um, how would you address that? It is, it is a difficult across the board. Uh, Karina, you want to go ahead? Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say representation is really across the board. It also, when we are looking at the data and trying to pull this inside, is being able to represent the entire Black community and their voices and concerns. Um, So representation really starts from the beginning of the past to the end of the past, and it's not just doctors, it's everyone around the system. And obviously, um, there's a lot of work to be done into that space. But as Miriam mentioned, anti-bias and cultural competency trainings can help employees and providers throughout that process. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think that's right. But, you know, then we hear these studies like this uh, one that came out recently where we <laughs> see black infants have better outcomes with black doctors and we don't know why. Right. 
So, I mean, that that's not something that's going to show up in, in, in a cultural competency training, like. It yes, and obviously, like, true. being from your same community, right, coming from your state community, understanding um, the barriers and challenges that that community faces, it's obviously there's more going to be more connection between the patient and the doctor. Uh, Miriam, you were going to add areas, on. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, there may be some areas there where healthcare organizations can help make sure that those patients can find providers that share identities with them. We found that across the board. We found that in our Hispanic study, we found that many, many people would like to have something in common with their providers. So the more that organizations can can make those connections, certainly the, the better off things will be. Uh, but then also to know if your provider's are, are embedded within your community or, or have experienced those trainings, um, that, that can make a big difference as well. No doubt. I mean, in their attitude. But I mean, when you talk about we would like to have something in common is a little different than babies survive more often when they have a black doctor. Like, that's, there's a, you know, there's a big difference there, right? Absolutely. One yeah. is a preference, um, and, the and other is life or death, right? And of course, if organizations organizations do need to do better about training, and that that starts all the way back back in medical school, obviously. And there are some uh, efforts being done um, by the government to recruit more people of diverse backgrounds into the medical system. So it really does have to go all the way <laughs> all the way to the beginning of of that. Um, but that that doesn't necessarily help a patient who is now you know looking online and and trying to see. We found that people. Um, black and African American patients, they have to consider discrimination and bias just when even, you know, setting out to find a provider at the very beginning of, of a journey, which is obviously something that um, many other groups just don't have to worry about. I have found that uh, my providers were completely unprepared for me to say, I would prefer a black doctor. They they just didn't know what to do with it. It was like deer in the headlights. And to me, that I'm surprised they don't hear it more often. I think part of it is being able to advocate for yourself, and that is something that also needs to be communicated to this community and any diverse community. I think it's important to say that I feel more comfortable with this type of provider, um, and that is really part of the communication and information that this community needs to receive. One of the things you guys um, you guys are recommending for um, healthcare brands um, is to acknowledge systemic issues. Miriam Browning, Nance, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean in, in, the, in this context? That could mean uh, taking responsibility and even acknowledging things from the past and acknowledging things in the present. Um, you know, making it clear that as a healthcare system, as part of the healthcare system, we haven't done enough. We need to do better. We need to, we acknowledge that bias exists. We acknowledge that we're not doing enough. We're, we, we could acknowledge that there are not enough black doctors out there. Um, but getting, getting real about those things, whether it's in your communications or whether it's, you know, making sure that your staff understands this, um, it, it means, you know, that then there is room for growth. We can't, all, you know, all healthcare organizations, most people who work for healthcare organizations, they have their hearts in the right place but they have to acknowledge that things have not been equitable and fair along the way so far. And uh, I think this probably doesn't just apply to black, uh, black people, probably applies to everybody. But another one of your recommendations is making 
accessing care easier. Um, Karina, how does that play out? I mean, I I have yet to see that uh, manifested anywhere um, in the healthcare system, not just for Black people. Yeah, I, <laughs> a case study that we like to reference is the COVID vaccine, and we can take some effective strategies from there. What we saw that is that they really tap into the core community values as part of the communication. In that case, it was really altruism and protecting the community. And that connection with the community also means borrowing the trust of already trusted sources like churches, community centers, and local influencers, and breaking down those logistical barriers to access like scheduling challenges. What I have seen is that with digital communication and apps, it's a way to be able to provide quicker access to doctor's appointments, um, to potential share rights, ways to be able to get appointments and get to those appointments um, for this community. But you know what? I, I think one of the lessons of COVID, too, was that there's a lot of our elders that are not comfortable with those apps and websites and whatnot. I, it seems to me that in, in South L.A., at least, and I think it was duplicated in other um, predominantly black communities, having a plain old-fashioned phone number that people can call instead of having to go through an app or a website can make a big difference. It certainly seemed like it did for the vaccines. Of course. Right, I it's think really going to be key to... Uh, go ahead, um, Miriam. Miriam. Right, that's where it's really, really key to know the community that you're in. You know, as Karina was saying, what are those churches? What are those community centers? Um, where could you tap into the to the real people, and then also use the networks that already exist within families, um, so within family or friend groups. So some, maybe the younger people in the family are using the app, and maybe the older people are not, and they need that old fashioned phone number. Maybe they can all encourage each other though to to get that care and uh, and recommend. Um, this goes back to the the trust. Recommend when they find a provider or a location that is trustworthy that does get it that does acknowledge this. Um, you know, part of this is, um, like you said, relationships, and part of it is is, is building trust. Um, what part of it, it did you find or did the study find um, needs to be done, you know, not by the healthcare providers, but by our internally in our community, working on, you know, our um, understanding of resources or our ability to discern uh, what's trustworthy and what is not? Karina? Yes, um, I think like really tapping into those community centers and local influencers that can provide that information that is needed to really to educate the community. And so they are aware of what is available to them. Healthcare is a very complex um, category that for all of us sometimes it's not easy to navigate. So it's finding those people within the community that can help spread information to ensure that it's being received um, by the patients and that they feel more comfortable throughout the journey. Right. Um, Miriam Browning, Nance, you mentioned, you know, toward the beginning of the conversation that this is not just historical, it's also present day. And we've now really seen the alarm bells being raised about black maternal mortality, how women, how many women, and, and in, in some cases, their babies are um, perishing in childbirth. And, you know, famously, all of us, most women 
black women were shocked that this happened to Serena Williams. You think if this can happen to the wealthiest, one of the wealthiest uh, women in women's sports across the board, not just black women, uh, one of the most famous athletes in the world, what would happen to the average uh, black woman who doesn't have that kind of clout behind her name? How does that whole, um, how does the struggle with maternal, black maternal health mortality in this uh, country um, interface with what you're talking about, about building trust, about getting, um, you know, people, brands, uh, to to do a better job in providing uh, health care for the African-American community. Right. I, I, as you said, that this is a crisis that you absolutely can't talk about this topic without talking about black maternal mortality, you know, three times, 3.3 times higher than, than white people. And it's an impact that, as you said, seen regardless of economic status. Um, and we, we took a look at how gender impacts people a little bit differently within the community. And black women in particular have often felt, felt and, and been dismissed, belittled, ignored in healthcare settings. Um, the studies show that they're often undertreated for pain. And one in four report facing blame for their health problems for doctor, by doctors. So if you feel blamed for your health problem, obviously you're not going, you're not going to be getting the best care. Um, so, you know, being rushed, not listened to, this is really where the providers need, need better training and need to be aware of this so that there can be some correction. Um, and, and, you know, we found th- these effects, uh, the black maternal mortality is the, uh, obviously the most, you know, top of mind and, and, and most concerning uh, stat, but we also found that just seven in 10 of people who reported experiencing discrimination weekly feel that it negatively impacts their health mm. and race is the top reason that people experience that discrimination. And then, of course, when, you know, when you have these negative interactions with providers, people no longer want to go in for that preventative care, and that's going to have long-term impacts on their health and the health of their families. Mm. So it really is a, can, can really um, compound down the road. Um, but that also means that once, if, if you get better experiences, if you get, if you start building that trust, um, if you start getting some of these strategies that people have found do work, that could really start turning things around. Well, uh, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Miriam Browning, Nance and Karina, uh, Dobaro, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us to talk about this important topic. And we'll talk about what's going on with Mr. Former Mayor of New York, Mr. Giuliani, when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm Dominique DePrima in for Arriva. And as you know, this is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and unfiltered opinions. And I am pleased to welcome into the space an attorney with more than 12 years experience representing government entities, private corporations and small to large size businesses, as well as individuals, uh, litigation attorney, uh, Edwin Rush. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you on. So it must be really wild for you as an attorney to watch all these attorneys just going through it. It seems like uh, there's, there's an entire circle of attorneys connected to the former president that are really um, kind of hitting rock bottom. That's true. I, you know, absolutely. Uh, Rudy Giuliani recently lost his defamation case, and there seemed to be a lot more coming. 
I, there are several that have been filed against him, and he's trying to essentially bring all of it into the bankruptcy court. Mm, yeah, so with with Giuliani, he was ordered to pay like $148 million to those two former election workers who literally went through hell on earth because he was telling uh, lies about them. Um, and it was, they were, you know, facing death threats and all kinds of other things. Um, and the judge kind of came down on him saying, you don't get the 30 days that people usually get. Start paying up right now. Um, basically saying that, you know, uh, backing up the election workers who said they thought he was going to try to weasel out of this. Um, and the judge said, you know, that um, he had been managed to escape from revealing his net worth because he wouldn't turn over evidence um, and that he had refused to acknowledge court orders pre- previously um, for him to reimburse those women so for their attorney fees. So um, the next day he, he files for bankruptcy. Um, I know they're, they're calling it a setback, but to me it, it looks like a, a weasel move to get out of paying these women anything ever. Well, I don't anticipate that it'll, he'll ultimately be successful. You don't think he'll be successful uh, in dodging this? The bankruptcy, the, the bankruptcy uh, court case is actually going to bring a stay to the defamation case that he had previously going. So their ability to collect will be brought into the bank court and the previous collection efforts for their judgment is going to be stayed while he's um, having the bankruptcy pending. Secondarily, he has filed for what's called a Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which is essentially a method he can use to reorganize his debt. That is not the same as a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, where he would essentially try to extinguish all debts. The reorganization under the Chapter 11 will allow for him to come to some sort of arrangement with his creditors, which are numerous. He's listed that he has between one and 49 creditors uh, that are currently uh, having a potential claim on his assets. So it's not the type of bankruptcy where you discharge everything. This is a type of bankruptcy where you decide who gets paid and how they'll get paid under the supervision of the bankruptcy court. Does that mean it's more likely that Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss will, will see some of, at least some of the money that they were supposed to be getting from this guy? Well, number one, uh, as you just stated, um, he is able under a Chapter 11 to come to some sort of arrangement with the various creditors so that he won't have to pay all of the money that they're owed. But secondarily, the judgment against him in the underlying defamation case with with Ruby Freeman and Andrea Moss is a defamation action, in which case uh, his statements, if found to be malicious and willful, will be set aside from the overall bankruptcy, and that judgment will still remain active against him. Now, practically speaking, I don't think anyone believes that he has $148 million to pay um, those two women who suffered through so much um, going through all of this. So practically speaking, I would anticipate that they may want to try to come to, to some sort of arrangement so that they see a significant amount of money, or it's, they're perfectly within their rights to pursue the $148 million for 
for as long as the bankruptcy court would let them. From a broke attorney who's selling vitamins on TV. Um, but <laughs> exactly. You know. We don't believe that his assets are going to be that much. He lists currently $10 million in assets against their $148 million. Well, and it, he'll have, they also will have various appeals. Yeah, and they're saying he's got between $100 million and $500 million debt. That's quite a range. Like, you're not sure if you have $100 million or $500 million in debt, um, but certainly that $10 million could be, um, you know, the judge already said he, he's probably hiding stuff. That's probably, you know, uh, an understatement of what he does have, no? I, I would think that there are a variety of assets out there that may, in fact, be assets that he holds, but are also maybe related to his businesses or whatnot. That's part of what the bankruptcy court does. They look into his various assets. He's responsible for essentially putting all his cards on the table to the bankruptcy court so they can see what are exactly his assets. There's going to be a trustee appointed in the bankruptcy action, and that trustee will also be going through um, a variety of his assets to determine how much he is actually worth. And how- so from that perspective, he has an obligation to show what his assets actually actually are. Because right, hiding stuff from the bankruptcy court, I imagine, is not a good idea. I, you are absolutely correct. It wouldn't be a good idea in any court. Certainly not in any court where you have a judgment <laughs> held against you. They are, they are allowed to go through all of your assets, even in the underlying defamation action, to determine how much he has. And I think the, the judge actually was allowing them, in that case, to advance um, their ability to collect because he had not been uh, essentially telling them what his assets were, that he had used, uh, essentially abused the discovery process and not providing a sufficient explanation as to what his assets were in that case. I mean, his attorney called uh, the the judgment the equivalent of a of like a death penalty for him. Um, that 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 this would end uh, Rudy Giuliani. Um, but it seems that they don't have the same consideration of what would end Miss Freeman and Ms. Moss because even after he was found guilty in this case, he was still talking smack. Right, which is why they, they, if they haven't already, they likely will be filing additional defamation actions against him for the statements that he's still continuing to make out there. And I think he's doing it for a variety of reasons. One, mm. he, it is in some ways, I think, maybe helpful to his case in the bankruptcy court. As I've stated before, any acts are deemed malicious and willful will be set aside from bankruptcy. So if he continues to put it out there that, hey, I believed all of this, I'm, I'm not trying to say the mistruth, that could potentially be used as evidence in the bankruptcy court because the standard for defamation action is that you at least have to be making negligent statements. It is, doesn't necessarily amount to willful and malicious. I mean, it reminds me a little bit, actually, to be honest, of Donald Trump in the E. Jean Carroll case where he was found liable for sexual assault, not rape, but sexual assault. And then as soon as he came out of court, he started talking smack again and they hit him. Uh, She was able to add that to her pending case, her pending second case against him, just based on what he said about his loss in court. It is very similar. In the case of uh, Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman, they would essentially be able to file an entirely new lawsuit based on the statements that he continues to make uh, about them. 
Right. So, right. But there is a concept in the law of being called judgment proof. If you don't got it, you can't pay it. So I think that is also a factor in this case. What ha- I mean, what happens if he gets it? I mean, it, this this is kind of hanging over him in perpetuity, right? That's why they call it the death penalty. If someone does the limited Rudy Giuliani series or he comes up with a, you know, men's hair dye that won't run down your face, um, that, you know, and makes a lot of money, they would still be, um, they would still be eligible to collect on that, on that uh, judgment, right? That is correct. Um a judgment is essentially collectible for in a variety of different districts for a certain amount of time. And then a lot of districts, that time period can actually be extended if you do certain filings in advance of the expiration of the judgment. So they could potentially be going after him for years. I think everyone's probably familiar with the O.J. Simpson case and where um, the family was going after him for for money for years decades after i think they might still be trying to go after money yeah from him anytime he makes money they're meant to get it but uh, apparently they they, they're not able to get the pension um it'd be interesting to see because you know it feels like um delay 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 which is which is the donald trump tactic he uses he's used all throughout his life in which he appears to be um, using right now um, with his 91 pending, uh, you know, uh, charges and even his, you know, peril in being kicked off the ballot. It's delay, delay, delay. um, And it seems like Rudy Giuliani is using the same tactic. It would be a shame if these uh, women never, never saw a penny um, after this man uh, ruined their life. We're talking with attorney Edwin Rush, and you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. And I'm Dominique DePrima in for Ariva Martin. Find me at DePrima Radio. Find us at KBLA 1580. And uh, perhaps I'll see you at the march on Saturday. There is a big march starting at La Cienega Park. Uh, it's it's um, uh, calling for uh, law enforcement to stop killing black people and calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. That's La Siena Cub Park starts at three o'clock. Uh, black Lives Matter uh, grassroots, Black Lives Matter LA, and a number of other community-based organizations. Talking now with G. Edwin Rush. Um, he's an attorney, a litigator, and we were talking about Rudy Giuliani. He, who went from being known as America's mayor after 9-11, um, being, you know, really having this heroic image to um, kind of being a broken man at this point. I mean, he's he claims to be up to $500 million in debt. He's lost this defamation case. He's got other cases in the pipeline that could be, um, you know, costing him money. He, uh, including... Uh, being liable in that Georgia case, right, uh, for the uh, election fraud there. He's already saying he's hundreds of thousands in debt uh, for lawyer fees. Does does Rudy Giuliani ever bounce back and become, you know, a practicing attorney, a respected, uh, uh, you know, attorney ever again? It's hard to see him... Uh, getting back to where he was after 9-11, I think, you know, all of us who were around back then can remember uh, him really being a face in New York at the time and showing such great leadership in such times of uh, peril for the country. 
And to see it all come to this is in some ways mind boggling. <laughs> that someone could have such a turn and go from being what could have been considered a unifier at the time, even though I know his his history with the city was somewhat controversial. Yeah, quite um, controversial. To where but on the national stage, he was seen, yeah, as a New Yorkers, a black New York would have a different story to tell. But yeah, for sure, on the national scene, he, he was seen uh, as, as someone with boundless potential, ran for president and all of that. Um, it seems like everything, you know, especially when it comes to lawyers, everyone the former president touches, um, you know, winds up potentially wearing an orange jumpsuit. It seems like it is fraught with fraught with peril to be associated with that movement. But it, you know, get back to your question though. He still has national prominence in his circles. You know, he's seen as someone who supports the president. He's never really wavered. President Trump, that is. He's never really wavered from from having that platform. So I don't think he'll ever be hurting for for food in that regard. And so you asked <laughs> previously whether whether. <laughs> Uh, Ms. Moss and Ms. Freeman would be able to collect. I think there will be some money there. I think just having national prominence, unfortunately, in this country is valuable in and of itself. And he still gets the media attention when he speaks. And I don't expect that to stop because yeah, the media keeps feeding. Right. You're, you're talking about uh, the former president right now. You're not talking about Giuliani. Um, uh, you know, some people are surprised that Trump hasn't stepped up to help with his legal fees since he's uh, so broke. I, well, I, I don't know who those people are. I'm not surprised at all <laughs> that he would not <laughs> he would not extend his pocketbook to to Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> so no, I, I think that uh, he has he has a lot of problems, and those problems are going to continue. As you mentioned before, he still has pending litigation against him, and I I, I don't know who's willing to extend uh, their attorney time to help him out, knowing that he has these limited assets, but they seem to keep on stepping up to the plate. Now, I, I don't remember. Was he disbarred? Has he been disbarred yet? Uh, he, well, I don't want to speak. I don't, I don't know the details of it. I do understand that he, he was at minimum suspended. I don't know that it's been a Yeah, I know there was a recommendation for a disbar- disbarment. Yeah, it's, it's what I'm, I'm, I'm looking at. It looks like it was just a recommendation, but that he, he okay, suspended suspended you're right he was suspended but not permanently disbarred so maybe he could get back to (laughs) practicing law um you know the uh donald trump we just have a couple minutes here but now you know he's trying to get um a presidential immunity right from the supreme court over the election uh tampering case and uh we found out today on the winter solstice, and Donald Trump is going to, looks like he's going to ask the Supreme Court um, for presidential immunity around the defamation case uh, that we were just talking about from writer E. Jean Carroll. Um, and so, again, it, it feels like um, he's really trying to manage the timeline uh, of, of his own legal troubles so that he can get back to being president and then become untouchable. Does that seem like a good strategy to you? It seems like it's the <laughs> it's the best strategy for him. It's not uh, a trick the question. Cases don't seem to be going well <laughs> from a factual standpoint, and right. so the longer he can he can keep it off and perhaps get elected, 
uh, that would alleviate some of his problems. I don't think it will alleviate all the problems, especially the cases that are um, being prosecuted by the individual states. He can't pardon those. I, I think he would probably rely on some sort of political capital for the governor of those states to be able to uh, pardon him for for the state actions once he becomes president. I think that would be something he might look into because he will be in such a powerful position. But I don't know, you know, he will still have problems after that. And in terms of the Eugene Carroll case, again, I think, I think that is just a play so that he doesn't have to face all of what's coming to him during the time of the election, which mm-hmm. will be starting in about a month. Right. Well, you said, but you made an interesting point. You said that the state charges, he can't pardon himself for those. He could conceivably pressure people or, you know, work on electing someone who, there on a state level, a governor who could pardon him. But wouldn't those cases have to be suspended once he was elected president? Uh, could, you know, Fonnie Willis continue uh, to move forward if he was actually in the White House? There's nothing stopping her. Uh, from prosecuting a case against a sitting president when she is prosecuting on behalf of the state. So that in and of itself wouldn't stop her from from um, continuing with the case moving forward, to my knowledge. I don't I don't see why she would have to stop. <laughs> because cool. it's, uh, he, you know, it was a poor act that had nothing to do with his... Uh, it's his, not funny at all, but I'm laughing because there are so many things happening right now in real time, I know that's the name of the show, that are (laughs) unprecedented things that have never, ever happened before in history. And for me, uh, you know, just as someone who's been in the news business and, and, and interested in history my whole life, it makes my head explode every day. We could where we could see a scenario where Trump could be in jail and could be the sitting president or could be being pursued by uh, the state of Georgia and be elected president and sworn in. It's just mind-boggling. Um, it, it, it's, yeah, go ahead. It, I'll say it's mind-boggling, but, you know, we have an ability to vote for or against this person. And if that's what, as a country, we decide to do, then that's what we get. You know, yeah, so people well. have to get out there and vote. You, yeah, it's well said. Uh, Attorney Edwin Rush, thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to it again. Absolutely. Uh, look, um, real-time delegation. Don't forget to check me out weekday mornings from 6 to 9. It's been my honor to sit in the chair for the great Ariva Martin. Please tap in with me on socials, KBLA 1580, on all the platforms, and me personally at Deprima Radio.